Hello, fellow Viking enthusiasts. I'm Lantern Jack, host of the Ancient Greece Declassified podcast. Like the Vikings, the ancient Greeks were a seafaring people who sent forth explorers to navigate beyond the limits of the known world. Also like the Vikings, their maritime odysseys inspired epic sagas that continue to fuel our imagination today. If you're curious to learn more about the ancient Greeks, their mythology, philosophy, and technology, then tune in from your podcast app to Ancient Greece Declassified, and join me as I explore all those issues in conversation with expert historians. And now, brace yourselves for another mind-blowing episode of the History of Vikings. And welcome to the history of Vikings. Before I introduce today's guest, I have two important things to tell you. If you enjoy the history of Vikings, then do me a favor and write me a review. I would love to hear your feedback. Secondly, if you have any good episode ideas, questions, or you know of someone who you think that I should have on the show, feel free to contact me as I would be truly delighted to hear from you. You can contact me via my email address, which is Noah at the history of Vikings.com. Again, that's Noah at the history of Vikings.com. Today I'm joined by Tom Shippey, a British scholar who is taught at six universities in Britain and America, including both Oxford and Harvard, and who has succeeded Tolkien many years later in the chair of medieval literature at Leeds University. He is widely considered one of the world's leading academic scholars on the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, about whom he has written several books as well as many books and articles on Old English, Old Norse, and medieval literature generally. Tom Shippey, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Noah, and uh, hi to everyone who's listening. I'm very pleased to be uh, able to talk to you. Yes, well, we're certainly excited to have you. Now, in your introduction, perhaps I forgot to mention the most important reason you're here, and that is your book, Laughing Shall I Die. So uh, before we get into the questions, Tom, could you just tell us a little bit about your remarkable book, Laughing Shall I Die? What is the, the general premise of the book? Well, the subject title, uh, as printed, is uh, Lives and Deaths of the Great Vikings. But actually, uh, I would have preferred Deaths and Lives of the Great Vikings, because uh, much of the time I am talking about what you might call a death cult. It's not exactly a religious cult, but one of the things which is striking about uh, Old Norse literature and its legends of the Vikings is the way that it concentrates on scenes of death and songs of death and famous last stands and famous last words. It is much more interested in the ends of the lives of the Vikings than in the, in the starts or even in their careers, though their careers, of course, can be reconstructed. But uh, that was my uh, main intention, actually, and that's why I called the book Laughing Shall I Die? And that is a quote. It's the last lines of the death song of Ragnar Harry Breaches, uh, one of the, uh, the most famous of Vikings in legend and I think in history as well. 
Well, that's that was uh, that was my intention uh, in a sort of a way. Also, um, one of my simple ideas was I thought I saw all these books about um, Roman generals and British admirals and uh, Native American chiefs, uh, and I thought, well, that's easy, isn't it? Uh, I'll do ten top Vikings. Actually, it didn't quite work out like that because sometimes uh, they come in pairs, so it came out as as more than ten, and I had to broaden my range a bit. But uh, that was the basic idea I had: ten top Vikings and looking in particular at the way they end their lives. Remarkable. And uh, for all who are listening, we will certainly put a link to Laughing Shall I Die in the description of this show. But I guess the I guess a very important question that I've certainly been been wondering is, you know, uh, let me just start this off a premise by saying, you know, we often think of the Vikings as these barbaric, uncivilized people. And when in reality, like so many other human beings throughout history and certainly in modern day, uh, they entertained philosophical ideas. And, you know, death has been um, something that has been thought of quite in depth by by so many different scholars and so many different religious leaders. But how did the Vikings view death? Uh, Was it something that they looked forward to? And was it something that they aspired to have these great and heroic deaths? But, But how did the Vikings view death and what would happen to Vikings who died? Well, that's um, a question that's been put for for several hundred years, actually. When um, people rediscovered Old Norse literature, which they did surprisingly late because most of it was preserved in Iceland, far away, cut off, isolated, nobody knew about it. But when people uh, did start to rediscover it, that's what struck them, that that they had these continuous uh, preoccupation with death. And um, the first guy who came up with an answer, and it's not a bad answer, he said... um, he, he thought that they were, what should we say, buoyed up by the belief in um, Valhalla that uh, it says in uh, in Snorri's Prose Edda, which is our main source for Old Norse myth and legend, it says that Odin's adopted sons are all those who fall in battle, and those who fall in battle go to join him in Valhalla, the halls of the slain, and there they uh, feast and make merry until Ragnarok. And they are, in a way, always in training for Ragnarok. And so people thought, well, actually, uh, uh, death in battle was um, uh, the desired fate. That was the best way to go. Um, And that actually has... um, It's become a staple, really, of writing about Vikings and and movies. I guess many people have seen the uh, the Kirk Douglas movie, The Vikings, which is I don't know sixty years old now. But if you have seen it, you probably remember the scenes where um, uh, Ragnar, uh, about to be uh, thrown into the wolf pit to be torn to pieces, he turns round and he holds out his bound hands and just looks kind of pleading, and uh, the guy who's guarding him cuts the rope and puts a sword in his hand and Ragnar doesn't start lashing about or trying to escape. He just takes the sword. He doesn't say thank you exactly, but he jumps into the wolf pit of his own free will because what he wanted was the chance to die sword in hand. Well, that kind of scene, I think, has been played again and again. And it it does have a basis in uh, Snorri Sturluson's uh, account. And and I think that's, uh, to some extent, confirmed by, um, by earlier sources. Um, that there was, uh, I don't say they looked forward to death, but they were always braced for it. And, uh, and in a way, um, well, they thought that, uh, that uh, uh, dying in your bed was um, actually 
not the way to go. We won't say exactly dishonorable, but uh, but definitely uh, not to be looked forward to. So now, would all Viking warriors or all Vikings who died in battle go to Valhalla, or would a Viking warrior need to commit some heroic and glorious deed in battle in order to be with Odin in Valhalla? Well, the first thing is, of course, uh, Snorri says that uh, all those who fall in battle are Odin's adopted sons. But of course, there are other gods as well, and the other gods all have their own places. Thor has a Thuthvangar, um, uh, Heimdall has Himinbjörg, and we don't really know, but it seems quite likely that um, Vikings who professed a particular devotion to a particular god might expect to go to that god's home base and not to Odin's Valhalla. Um, so I think the cult of Thor, for instance, was obviously, I should think it was more popular than the cult of Odin. The the Odinic cult was rather um, rather high class, you know? Uh, and uh, Snorri also says that uh, that Thor is for the, the free men, the Karls, not for the, the nobles and the Jarls. So that's one thing. They probably had different ideas about what was going to happen to them. And do you have to perform a heroic deed? Well, there's a poem, an early poem, and it's about the death of Eric Bloodaxe, who was killed in the year 954 in England. And the poem, uh, which is called the Eriksmal, uh, describes his arrival in Valhalla. And uh, they can hear him coming, and Sigmund and Sinfjötli, the kind of senior heroes, uh, ask Odin why he's letting Eric come in. Uh, they sound a bit jealous, actually. Uh, who's this new guy? And Odin says he has borne a bloody sword in many lands. Well, that's good. But then they continue the conversation, and uh, and the question really is, why is Odin continually strengthening his team? And Odin says very enigmatically, because it is never certain when the gray wolf will attack the house of the gods. So what Odin's saying is, effectively, I've got to keep strengthening my team. I want all my warriors here in good training because the last battle might come any day. And incidentally, that is why you can't trust Odin. If you are an Odinic champion, he will betray you. He will break your sword with his spear on the battlefield and leave you defenseless because he wants you. And he wants you because... <laughs> He wants his team at full strength. Sigmund, who was one of their senior heroes doing the greeting, he was uh, betrayed by Odin on the battlefield. You're actually, you're actually much safer, I think, as a, as a devotee of Thor. But you might pick another god, actually. Um, there's a runic inscription on one of the pieces of metal salvaged from the, the strange weapon dumps, which you find all over Denmark. And it, the inscription says, Wulthuthawaz. And I looked at this for a bit and thought, what the, what does that mean? Thewaz is the old form of the word for slave or servant. And Wulthu, I think, is um, kind of mutated spelling of the god Ullr. And what is the god Ullr the god of? He's the god of skiing. Okay. So you can have a warrior there who says, I am the devotee of Ullr. Not Odin, not Thor, not Frey, not Heimdall. A god who's really quite a quite a low-rank god. But everybody had their favorites, and um, presumably they had some idea of what the god was going to do for them. Wow. You know, that's very interesting because uh, I love um, the Norse myths, and I've, I've always been fascinated with them. And I was always under the assumption that all those Vikings who died in battle would go uh, to be with Odin in Valhalla, but but clearly that's, that's not the case. What would happen to those Viking warriors who died? and would go to Valhalla. 
what would their life be in Valhalla and what sort of things would they do to await Ragnarok when they would be trained up and would they go then with Odin to fight against the giants, the various frost and fire giants? What would their life uh, in Valhalla consist of? Well, it doesn't sound like all that much fun to tell the truth but uh, according to Snorri what they do is um, uh, every morning they get up they put their armor on and they fight each other and they fight each other during the day and many of them are killed and then they're brought back to life in the evening and in the evening they uh, feast on mead and on roast pork um, which is on you know on permanent uh, uh, permanent supply and this is really kind of what you might call um, aggressive training. They have to be uh, in practice all the time. It sounds um, it sounds uh, a bit painful, really, but uh, that anyway is what Snorri uh, says. So uh, I wonder, I wonder myself quite quite how much uh, uh, fun there is in this. But I guess if you know you're going to come to life at the end of the day, it's not too bad. That's very true. Now, there's there's this sort of debate going on, and we've talked about it here on the show, as to whether female Norse warriors even participated in battle at all. Can we see in the sagas or in uh, medieval Viking literature any cases of female warriors uh, dying gloriously in battle? And then if so, would, would they go to Valhalla? Or was Valhalla pretty much a place where only male warriors would go? Yeah, I think it is actually pretty male-oriented. Um, and um, the best example I can think of, of, uh, you know, a shield maiden, is um, in one of the lesser-known sagas. Actually, it was translated by Christopher Tolkien. And he called it... Um, uh, the saga of King Heydrek the Wise. Uh, but actually, other people don't call it the saga of King Heydrek. Uh, they call it Hervarar Saga, which means the saga of Hervor. And Hervor is a female name. And uh, Hervor is described um, as... Um, hang on, I've got it, got it here. I'll read the description. Uh, let's see. Um, the child was brought up in the house of the Jarl, and she was as strong as a man. As soon as she could do anything for herself, she trained herself more with bow and shield and sword than with needlework and embroidery. She did more often harm than good, and when it was forbidden her, she ran away to the woods and killed men for her gain. When the Jarl heard of this, he went to the place with his men and seized Herver and brought her home with him. After that, she dwelt at his house for a while. But then, of course, somebody needles her, and she decides to um, go and retrieve her father's sword, the famous sword Turving, from the barrow in which he's been buried. And she uh, goes to his barrow and talks to her father, who is still there as a kind of, uh, they would say, a, a droger, a kind of living dead in the barrow. And she retrieves the uh, the sword Turving and uh, makes a name for herself as a warrior, but but she does not die in battle. She does not die in battle. In a way, after this, um, shall we say, unruly adolescence, uh, she uh, is kind. Of, well, actually, she fades out of the story. But there is at least that example of uh, of a woman who trains as a warrior and fights as a warrior. But on the whole, women play a very prominent part in uh, in Old Norse sagas. But the kind of um, uh, woman who becomes a man, that's not common at all. No. That's not to say, Noah, that there aren't extremely frightening women in Norse sagas. Uh, <laughs> some of them realistic and some of them some of them, uh, not exactly goddesses, but uh, but spirits of another kind is the best I can say. Of which one of the most striking ones is um, the woman called Thorgather Hugabruther. Uh, Thorgath, that's um, uh, bride of the altars. 
And she uh, uh, seems to be a, a kind of family deity who protects the Jarls of Hlathir in, uh, in, um, uh, in Norway, in North Norway. And just as, a, as a, a side note, I think she is the origin of the rather strange character Lathgerth in the Viking series. I think um, it would go in Old Norse Hlathagerther, uh, but in Danish the Hl at the start will be dropped. So she just become Lathagerth and, uh, and uh, Saxo Grammaticus, who wasn't very good on names, uh, he wrote her down as Lathgertha. And that's where the script writers of the Viking series have, have got her from. But she played a decisive role in the battle between the Jarls of Hladir and the Jomsvikings when the Jomsvikings came to try and take them over. Fascinating. We certainly see all these these epic scenes of in the sagas of folks dying in battle uh, quite dramatically. And earlier you mentioned that uh, the Vikings weren't too keen on uh, dying in bed or dying uh, in old man's death. So how was how important was it to the Vikings that they die honorably? Like, how was their perception of honor relevant when it came to death? Well, um, it is uh, about honor, but I think there's also a, a realistic element, actually that uh, uh, if you're in a kind of Icelandic farmhouse um, uh, up uh, pretty close to the Arctic Circle, coming an old man um, and, you know, with all the problems of old age, like, uh, you know, cold feet and uh, not being able to move around and your teeth going, that's, that's not a very uh, pleasant fate at all. Um, I can quite see why uh, uh, men might quite realistically uh, prefer to die, perhaps not in their prime, but not too long after their prime. One of the saddest accounts we've got, I think, uh, is by... Uh, a famous Viking, uh, Eitel Skatagrimson. I'll call him Egil from now on, but it's Eitel in 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 Norse. Anyway, he uh, he uh, played a very distinguished career. Uh, for instance, being captured by Eric Bloodaxe, and since he had killed Eric Bloodaxe's ten-year-old son, this was a bad situation for him. But Egil was a famous poet, and uh, his cousin managed to persuade Eric to um, kind of give him a, a, a give him give him judgment in the morning instead of immediately and he told Egil to turn up with, and he said you better have a 20 stanza poem praising Eric and if it's a good poem maybe he'll let you off and Egil did in fact produce the poem which is called Hervith Loisen head loosing or head ransom it's the ransom he paid for his head well anyway Egil was a famous Viking but uh, despite uh, uh, all his uh, battles he uh, he ended up uh, in his farmhouse in Iceland uh, as an old man and his sons sons uh, were dead and um, he, uh, we still have his uh, his uh, his death song, and it ends up again. I've got it somewhere around here. Yeah, these are the last uh, couple of lines of it, and I'll give it in Old Norse. He says, "Skalik do glather med godan vilja ok o hrigr heljar bida." Still, I shall gladly, with a good will, and not grieving, wait for hell. So he does not expect to go to Valhalla. Um, he doesn't qualify. Uh, he expects to go to hell, uh, the gloomy realm of the underworld. And that's not a good fate. But just the same, he says, I will be unafraid. I'm not grieving. I think the big thing for the Viking idea of honor is we all lose. Everybody loses. It's not a matter of winning. It's how you take losing. And the serious thing is you mustn't give up. Under no circumstances must you give up. And what they admire particularly are people who, in hopeless situations, manage to die laughing like Ragnar or 
unafraid like Ego or who manage at some in some way in the in the in the last moments of their, their lives to turn the tables. They really admired they thought that actually when you come to your death and when it's completely hopeless, that's when you show what you're made of. And that m- means, I think, that um, they were psychologically better prepared than we are. Uh, they didn't expect to win all the time. They knew that even the greatest heroes, well, you might be outnumbered. You might be taken off guard. You might be betrayed. You might just run out of luck. Who decides who dies in a battle? The Valkyries do. The Valkyries, they choose the slain. And we don't know what they cho- why they choose them. They just do. So everybody runs out of luck. That's inevitable. Uh, what you have to do is to, um, uh, is to face up to it. And that's when you show what you're made of. And that's why I think there are all these last stands, last uh, last words, people dying on their feet, people dying laughing, people trying to turn the tables on their enemies. That's that's what they really admired. Now, Tom, so that's certainly an element of the legacy of Viking that we still have, fortunately, today is their dramatic death scenes. And as we are able to understand how they view death, it's it's really quite inspirational uh, for me personally, I would say. But in other works of literature, such as the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, which I know you are quite familiar with, um, do we see any inspired scenes of dramatic death in uh, Tolkien's works that are inspired by... Um, actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tolkien was uh, uh, not, not coincidentally uh, about the, the best writer of modern times of death scenes. If you want, you know, the, the best example, I suppose, it's uh, Theoden King uh, dying on the battlefield, you know, crushed by his horse. Um uh, having uh, uh, having uh, led the charge, it's a very. Uh, Tolkien said actually he thought that was the um, the most moving moment of Lord of the Rings. It's when uh, Theoden is looking down at the the great armies of orcs and it all looks pretty hopeless. And uh, Merry, who's with him, thinks maybe he's, maybe he's old. Maybe he's going to turn around. Maybe he's going to going to give up. And instead, um, Theoden takes his horn and blows such a blast on it that the horn bursts and then he charges and no one can keep up with him. No matter how fast his uh, his bodyguard rides, he stays ahead of them all the way. And of course, then he is uh, he is killed. But he, uh, uh, he, he lives long enough to see his daughter. And there's an example of a shield maiden for you. His daughter, Erwin, sorry, she's not his, his daughter, she's his niece. Uh, he lives long enough to see her. Uh, and then she, of course, squares up to the uh, the Nazgul and his strange uh, dinosaur-type steed. But yeah, uh, that's a very good scene. And another good one from The Hobbit, very surprising in a children's book, is the uh, sad death of uh, Thorin Aikenskjaldi, Thorin Oakenshield, who dies, uh, you know, um, dies from many wounds after the Battle of the Five Armies. But yeah, um, Tolkien was very good at death scenes. And uh, as I say, that's no coincidence. Where do you think he learned that from? Uh, Tolkien was very, very familiar with Old Norse uh, uh, story and legend. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Tom Shippey. I've certainly, it's been absolutely an enjoyable time for me to be able to have this discussion with you. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, we will uh, definitely put a link to your book, Laughing Shall I Die, in the description. But uh, for all my listeners, is there anywhere that people can find you? 
Yeah, uh, if uh, you go to the website www.academia.edu, uh, get onto that, type my name into the search uh, uh, bit, and um, and a lot of my publications will, will pop up. And if you go to the book section, uh, you'll see a, a link there to the uh, uh, to the publisher's page and the blog, and, and that also actually gives you a discount on the book if you feel like it. So that's, uh, that's one way to... Uh, see more of my materials if that's what you want to do. I was going to say one other thing, uh, uh, Noah. Actually, uh, I think uh, one of the questions I I tried to answer in my book, and perhaps I've, I've been answering it, but um, it's a big question, really. How did they get away with it? The Vikings, after all, terrorized Europe for about 250 years, and it's not as if they were up against a bunch of pacifists. They were up against military societies, you know, all organized for war. Um, how did they get away with it? Well, I, I guess I've been answering that. It was their their heroic mindset. Uh, I think actually you could defeat Vikings if you were lucky, if you were well organized, but uh, actually you couldn't daunt them. They always came back. It's amazing, really. Even when they had heavy casualties, they seemed to raise new armies and new fleets, you know, just like that. Well, uh, somehow they, uh, their mindset prepared them for it. And it's that mindset, I think, that, uh, that is worth, uh, is worth our, our careful study and comprehension. Yes, remarkable. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Noah. If you enjoyed this episode of the History of Vikings, do me a favor and write me a review. I would love to hear your feedback. You can also feel free to contact me. And my email address is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to the History of Vikings.